Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The good friend of this program, and I, uh, I, I admire what he does because he's a teacher and he's a good teacher, but he's a bit of a heretic. You know that, eh, Michael? I, I, I've been told that. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Zweigster joins us, Manitoba high school teacher. He's, uh, his first book was What's Wrong With Our Schools? And he has a new book titled Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning. And uh, really points out what remains wrong with our primary and secondary school approach to education. So, so this book, and I'm looking forward to reading it. I've read about it, and I've... I've uh, you, know, you, sent it, you sent me a PDF version, so I've been reading bits and pieces, getting ready for the interview. Uh, but what I this is a collection of your op-eds that you've written over the last 10 years, right? Yes, it is. At, uh, you know, when, when uh, the first book uh, was published, which uh, I co-authored with uh, two former education professors, uh, that really kind of started uh, something there. There was a lot of interest in what was in that book, and I started writing a lot of op-eds, uh, that have been published in newspapers across the country, and uh, I wanted to uh, to put out a new book that collected many of those op-eds, and that in many ways this uh, new book, A Sage on the Stage, uh, updates and uh, adds to a lot of the things that appeared in the first book, and uh, and really uh, t- tackle some of the, the issues that are happening in schools today. Well, you and I have spoken about this, and I've had, we, we, we took calls from parents, we actually took calls from teachers, on a number of issues like the no zeros policy. But you make the case in the book for knowledge of content, so content knowledge for students. Also, and this is uh, in today's progressive world, Michael, you know this is a hot zone issue, um, memorization. A lot of, of today's progressive educators see no point to this. Also, uh, what's going on in education faculties. But what I did was I went to the contents page of your book. Mm-hmm. And so I looked for uh, headings that really immediately caught my attention, like foolish education fads. Let's start with that. Sure. Well, there, there there's no shortage of uh, foolish education fads because, uh, you know, education faculties where teachers are taught uh, are, held, uh, are held in sway by them. So, for example... Uh, you take something like the common notion of individual learning styles that that everyone is either a visual learner, an auditory learner, or a tactile kinesthetic learner, and that teachers should design lessons for each of these different types of learners and then divide them up into groups and have differentiated instruction to go along with that. Uh, individual learning styles is a myth. It's, it's been tested. It's, it's actually not accepted by in, in the psychological community because there's no evidence for it. What there is evidence for is that good, effective whole-class instruction uh, can include a variety of strategies depending on the content that you're actually teaching. And so, yes, sometimes it makes sense to show a picture. Sometimes you should explain things verbally. 
Often you should do you should do all of those things, but you don't divide students up into these different uh, groups and then teach your lesson three or four times over again. You you, you deliver effective whole class lessons to everyone, uh, and then proceed accordingly. And there, there's just so many fads going on in education; it's just unbelievable. When you look at that one particularly, I'm thinking back to the uh, age of the dinosaur when I was in high school. <laughs> but we learned as a as a group going forward, and I, I'll never forget. Uh, and I've talked about this on the air, a history teacher walking in in grade 10 was a brand new teacher. We didn't know anything about him. He knew very little about us. And he, he walked into the classroom and he, t- he pulled a map down from the uh, the wall. And he said, all right, here are two countries, one on the left, one on the right, three countries, one on the left, one on the right, one in the middle. The countries on the left and the right want to take over the country in the middle. Okay, so you guys on the left of the classroom, you're the country on the left, you on the right are the country on the right. Figure out a strategy on how you would take over the country in the middle and we'll talk about it in 10 minutes. So we did. We got into it. Really got excited. You know, history. Can you imagine? Great 10 history. We were all excited. And, and, and we came up, we devised strategies. And out of that came a classroom discussion that went on and on. And Michael, he said to each class, if you guys want to continue this at the end of the school day, come back to the classroom. That classroom was filled on day one. Well, sure. Knowledge, knowledge is empowering. When, it, when a teacher has the, the content knowledge and conveys it in an enthusiastic way that's interesting to students, uh, the more you know, the more that you're able to learn. Mm-hmm. And there's one of the big fads that's, that's been around for a long time, it's not new, is this idea that, well, knowledge is going obsolete, everything is changing so fast, so we're just going to teach students how to look things up, how to Google, and teach them the process of learning, and then they'll go figure out things themselves. No, they won't. No, they won't. Uh, Left to their natural devices, that is, in most cases, what will not happen. Uh, You need to have focused, content-rich instruction that builds sequentially. Uh, It's key to reading comprehension. You can't read properly if if you don't know something about what you're reading. It's key to critical thinking, and it's key to empowering students who are disadvantaged, who come from poor homes with a big vocabulary deficit, you need to have a solid knowledge base starting right at grade one. And if you don't get that in school, and if you're from a poor family, you're probably not going to get it at all. And and you end up falling farther and farther behind. Well, how many times have uh, we spoken on this program with uh, with parents who've called in absolutely, totally frustrated with the fact that their, their children didn't understand what was going on, for example, maybe grade four. But they were moved ahead to grade five. They fell behind in grade five, fell further behind in grade six. But they just moved along, moved along, moved along. And by the time they graduate from high school, they have no idea what they were supposed to have learned or or very little idea of what they were supposed to have learned. Which brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you about. And that is a chapter in your book, Tests Are Good for Students. Hold on. We live in a no-fail world, Michael. Didn't you know that? (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, that, that's a pervasive notion, but the reality is, is that, and I present some of this evidence in the book, that uh, that when students know that there is going to be a test at the end of a unit and that uh, causes them to spend some time reading the textbook, and yes, by the way, I defend textbooks as well. It's good for students to read actual physical textbooks. Uh, when, you, when you know there, there's going to be a test and you're reviewing, more of it sticks in your memory on both a short-term and long-term basis than, than if you don't. And so testing is good. It gives you the incentive to review material, to go over it, to have it stick in your brain more. Uh, there's a very important concept in, 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 in psychology. It's called cognitive load. And basically, cognitive load says that there's only so much 
that your working memory can process at the same time. In order to be able to learn new things and think deeply, you need to have things memorized in your head, and usually that comes from practice and memorization and, 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 and repetition. Uh, you have to have things memorized, and then you can go on to more advanced concepts. So, for example, if you memorize your multiplication times tables, you, you will have a much better chance of being able to do a more uh, an advanced algebraic equation. If you have to go to your calculator to go 5 times 6 equals 30, if you don't know 5 times 6, you don't know those basic things, you, you've got too much cognitive load. There's too much in your working memory, and you can't do the more advanced things. You can't think deeply unless you have a lot of knowledge stored in your brain on a long-term basis. Yeah, you can't fix the engine unless you know how to open the hood. Very true. These things have to come automatically, and things come automatically when you acquire knowledge, you have the practice, and it doesn't mean that's all you're doing, but it's, it's a key component of what you're doing. Yep. And the more you know about something, the more that you're able to learn. The less you know about something, the harder it is to get that initial knowledge. That's why you need the teacher uh, giving direct instruction, spending some time in front of the room, explaining things, going over it, correcting mistakes, uh, taking charge in a in a in a direct approach, rather than just have ever, everyone sitting in groups trying to figure out things and students pool their ignorance, uh, and uh, as opposed to actually learning something new. Now, what what's going on in education faculties? Because my sense is that as you were explaining things to me and talking about what's in the book, I hear a lot of teachers cheering in the background. Well, absolutely, lots of teachers agree with me. Huge numbers. I've. Uh, I've spoken at many different events uh, over the years, and I've gotten lots of feedback from teachers. Lots of teachers agree with me because we're in the classrooms, and, and we work with real students, and we have to actually implement things. Uh, the people who don't disagree with me tend to be higher-ups in education, and so I don't expect a whole lot of buy-in from school division superintendents or uh, you know, education officials or consultants in particular, consultants who make a living off promoting bad ideas. Uh, those, those groups, I'm not expecting a huge amount of support. But among regular classroom teachers, people like me that are actually in the classroom currently on a full-time basis, uh, that's where I get a lot of my support, and that's been that way for years. Why are report cards not popular? Well, it's, uh, you know, there, there, it, it sort of goes with this whole uh, approach of not really liking to uh, to put a number uh, on on where students' achievement is at, and uh, there's a lot of the the assessment consultants that just they don't like uh, percentage grades. They uh, they prefer the, this four level scale where you use words like exemplary or efficient or emerging, which is what's happening right now in Calgary public schools from K to nine. Very frustrating to parents in terms of trying to figure out where their kid is actually at. Uh, and then you couple with it the same assessment consultants are the same people that promote no zero policies. And of course we've. On your show and elsewhere, we've heard all about the Lyndon Dorval story from a number of years ago, and I write about that a lot in the book um, because that uh, that case just infuriated me and a whole lot of teachers. That uh, you know, for a teacher to lose his job for uh, uh, for not complying with the school's ridiculous no zero policy in terms of just how badly that whole situation was handled, and Lyndon Dorval, uh, as you know, because you've talked about it in your show, he was vindicated. I mean, it went That's right. He was he was a guest on the show. And he was a guest on the show on a number of occasions. Yeah, we, we talked to uh, Lyndon on a number of occasions. Look, you're providing parents with, uh, I don't want to call it a handbook necessarily, but you're providing them with ammunition to defend the case they want to make about the education of their children in many cases. What do we need to know? Uh, other than the questions I've asked you, what do we need to know about what's in the book that parents can make use of? 
Well, parents need to know that uh, uh, the book shows some of the things that are uh, that are going on. It, it makes a solid case for things like content knowledge, uh, for why practice is important, for a lot of the things that we would call traditional, although that word has its own connotations. It lays out the evidence in a very user-friendly manner because most of the book consists of op-eds that had previously been published, and so it's written at a level that the, that the average person can read. It cites research evidence, uh, and I do actually refer to studies, and so the nice thing, you can go through the book, and if you want to pursue the issue of uh, no-zero policies or you want to you know, pursue this question about why is it important for kids to actually memorize facts, I do reference names of researchers and names of particular studies and references to uh, education journals where I show that this is what the evidence actually shows. Um, referencing things like why the evidence, you know, the evidence actually supports phonics, not whole language, when it comes to reading instruction. So parents can pick up this book, and it's not hard to find the evidence in a user-friendly manner, as opposed to the jargon uh, that often comes out uh, uh, from the from education faculties. Where, and I poke some fun at that too in the book, where there's some crazy stuff that gets published by education professors, just downright nutty, or everything from critiquing uh, uh, Berenstein Bears because they show talking animals to, uh, uh, you know, to saying that uh, dodgeball is a bad game. I'm sure you heard all about that in the news oh, lately. Yes. I mean, it's just this crazy stuff that education faculty put yeah. out. Well, look, one of the real problems with education, from my perspective, is it became politicized quite some time ago, and it's just gotten worse. Well, and it doesn't need to be. And this is, this is what's frustrating is that, and I know the vast majority of people who are listening to me right now, uh, I, I, mean, I know a lot of people are thinking, how can any of this be controversial? This idea that kids need to know specific facts, we need to build on it sequentially, teacher needs to be in charge of the classroom, we need to test students, we need to have accurate grades. Uh, these are basic things that the vast majority of the population agrees with, but this is what is, is exactly what is rejected by and large in faculties of education where teachers are trained by education professors. And again, you can check me out on Twitter and you can see that there's a lot of the education gurus that really don't like what I'm saying, even though I know that the majority of the public would be with me, because these things are common sense. The evidence supports the things that I'm talking about, and I lay it out in the book. Give me about 45 seconds, which is the time we have left on school choice. School choice is good. It's uh, when, when you have the proper parameters, uh, Really, it's about money following the student. Um, Edmonton actually does this quite well with the public schools there, where uh, you have a variety of options within the public system. Uh, some schools that specialize in uh, uh, arts and science, and uh, science or arts, and others that are spe- have a you know there's religious schools, Christian or Muslim schools. And again, as long as you're teaching a common provincial curriculum and you're hiring certified teachers, uh, it makes sense that parents should be able to send their kids to the school that fits their philosophy. And so. Again, this is more of an issue in larger urban centers where you have the potential for that sort of choice. But there is a section of the book where I do say that uh, that when possible, parents should have a reasonable amount of say in what school their kid goes to. All right. Michael Zweigstra, that's Z-W-A-A-G-S-T-R-A. Z-W-A-A-G-S-T-R-A. First name I don't need to spell. And uh, the book is A Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning. I may have to spell Michael if you're a recent graduate of a spelling and writing course <laughs> maybe <laughs> michael always great talking to you thanks so much and uh, we'll certainly be talking to you again soon always good to be with you Roy. thanks very much bye-bye michael zweigster from manitoba high school teacher good guy if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites 
And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.